Uh, why don't you rise to your feet, and we're going to read uh, this morning a section of Scripture from Isaiah chapter 7. Um, I'm not going to ask you to read out loud with me. I will read it uh, in your hearing, and we'll look at the first 17 verses here of Isaiah chapter 7. I was supposed to preach last week, but I got the flu and I was out. And I called up Pastor Kurt and he, he pinched hit. He was supposed to preach this week and he's got a migraine headache today. So we need to be in prayer for Pastor Kurt, but God had a sense of humor. He knew someone would be healthy enough to preach the word of God. So, amen. Let's look at uh, Isaiah chapter 7. I'll start reading at the first verse. <clears throat> In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Yashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint. Because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands, at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah, because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Verse 10, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also. Verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey, when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have, have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah 
the king of Assyria. Let's pray. Father, there's so much in your word uh, that in all eternity we won't be able to mine the fullness of it because in it you are revealed. And you are the eternal, immortal God of wonder. So Lord, we, we pray that as we come before this section of your word today, that you might accomplish the purpose that you have in each and every life represented here. Teach us, convict us, guide us, and most of all, Lord, show us Jesus, the Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. Show, him, show us him more clearly that we might serve you and love you, Lord, even more. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. 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 You may be seated. Praise the Lord. This is a very familiar scripture, at least part of it is, to, to many Christians, particularly the 14th verse of this chapter, the Emmanuel prophecy. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. This is, of course, a prophecy of the great prophet Isaiah. And we're going to see today... Uh, I hope you'll be able to see even more clearly a way in which God works through Isaiah and very often through many of his prophets uh, throughout the Old Testament as they, they minister to a particular people at a particular time in a particular place with a particular circumstance. He's speaking, we've got to get this in our minds and hearts, to a particular context. So prophets of God will always uh, be those who speak in time to a specific people. But also we'll see here as we look at this scripture that this is so much bigger than just the people who Isaiah was initially speaking to. He not only speaks in time, but he speaks out of time. He speaks in a prophetic oracle and declares what will be fulfilled in the fullness of the kingdom of God. And so this is so often how God works in his word. So we're, we're, we're here with the prophet Isaiah in chapter 7. Uh, we saw his call to ministry in chapter 6. We didn't read that, but you, many of you know the call as he's caught up in a vision and sees God and he sees the cherubim and the seraphim flying about and crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And Isaiah's reaction to the holiness of God is simply to say, woe is me. He says, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. He sees in the reflection of the holiness and perfection of God the degree of his own sinfulness. And he is brought low before the great God. And so we see this pattern throughout uh, the book of Isaiah who refers to God often with these words, the Lord Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel. This is how God is portrayed throughout 
this, this beautiful uh, uh, prophetic book in Scripture, God is portrayed as the Holy One of Israel. Um, so uh, I, I want to share with you, because this, this, this prophecy is a strange prophecy. It's prophesying that a virgin will be with a child. A few weeks ago, I was listening to, uh, to a debate between a Muslim scholar who called himself a Muslim scholar of the Hebrew Bible and the Christian New Testament. And it was a, a debate between him and a Christian pastor. And as I listened to it, it became very clear that uh, the, the Muslim cleric was an excellent debater. He was very good at what he did. He was very convincing to those who did not know what to believe. And, and he, 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 he pounced upon this fact that the debate was on this subject, is Jesus God? And he pounced on it. And he went scripture and chapter and verse, and he said, in Matthew... Chapter 4, verse 2, the Bible says that Jesus was hungry. Is God Almighty hungry? Does he need something to eat? Is this your God? If he needs something to eat, then he'll eat it, and eventually, like the rest of us, when you eat something, it has to go out of your body as well. Does God Almighty need to go to the bathroom? Does he need to clean himself off? And in another place, in John chapter 19, the Bible says, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. Is your God thirsty? Doesn't he have enough to drink? Didn't he make the waters? Is your God thirsty? And then I'm really confused because you say Jesus is God, but Jesus says in Matthew 24 about his second coming that the angels in heaven... And even the Son, even I don't know when that's going to be, but only the Father. Is your God, your almighty God, Jesus is almighty God, but how come he doesn't know when he's coming back? I thought God would know all those things. And so he puts out this, and he goes on in this unending stream against the attack on Jesus as God himself. And God has laid things out in such a way that he can do that. He can do that because what God has done in, in the Trinity and particularly in the incarnation of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, born under the law, what he's done is set it up so that it is hard for us to understand all of this. Do you have your full mind, uh, uh, do you have a full grasp of the fact that the eternal God of the universe who spoke the world into existence by his word became himself a babbling baby in Bethlehem such that he couldn't say a single word himself? Have you figured out, do you have it all figured out how the God of the universe put himself in a position that he could not feed himself, clothe himself, or, or clean himself. This is the God of the universe, and yet this is what the Scripture reveals to us of our God, 
who made himself, Philippians said, of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant and came in the likeness of men and having become a man, he emptied himself of all his divine prerogatives and took upon himself this servant's heart. This is the God that we serve. This is the good news of the gospel. But, but it's strange news. We have to admit that. My question today that we'll, we'll look at as we look at these verses is simply this. Where is your faith? Where is your faith? So often we get very intellectual, many among us. And we know principles and we know presuppositions and we know proposals and procedures, but God says you need to know a person and his name is Jesus. He is the Christ. He is the Savior. He is Emmanuel, God with us. It's not about all these other things. Where is your faith? Is it in the person and work of Jesus the Christ. And so we're going to look at what happens here over, well, in 735 B.C. is when uh, Isaiah originally says these words. So let's look at the verses here and, and see what's happening both in the immediate context and then how God is also speaking to us. So it starts... In verse 1, in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up against Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of the people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. What's going on here? Most of you know that about 200 years earlier, the, 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 the kingdom Israel, the nation of Israel was split into two nations. And the, the, the nation uh, in the south was called Judah. Isaiah is a prophet to Judah. Ahaz is the king of Judah. The, Judah had some good kings and Judah had some bad kings. It was on and off and in and out. But the other nation that broke off was called Israel and sometimes is called Ephraim, which means the 12 or the 10 other tribes. There were two tribes, uh, Benjamin and Judah that were part of Judah and 10 tribes that were part of Israel or Ephraim. Okay, so, so what's happening is that, that Judah is getting word that Israel, the ten tribes, along with another country, Syria, want to wage war against them. And they know that these two countries combined are much more powerful than them and they don't have much of a shot at overcoming them. And so the Bible says that when Ahaz, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of the people shook, as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. They were scared to death. I wonder if there's anything that you are scared of today. I hope there is. There are some things that, that I'm scared of. Um, some of you saw the, the first, I'm aging myself, but the first Indiana Jones movie way back in the day. Indiana Jones is taking on the terrorists of his day. 
and taking on guys with great big spears and swords and clubs and boulders coming at him and all of these things that happen. But there's one scene where he is over this pit and he looks at the bottom of the pit and he says, snakes. Why did it have to be snakes? I'm afraid of snakes. And me and Indiana Jones, we're cool like that because I don't like snakes either. I'm not trying to be a wimp. I know some of you are cool with snakes. I'm not cool with snakes. But he was scared of snakes. But we need, there are some things we ought to be afraid of. There was a study done originally in 1989, and then they completed it in 2009. They took 1,800 three-year-olds in, in, in 1989, and they did this study that would cause them to be startled and to have fear, and they measured their response of fear. Then, in 2009, 20 years later, they were 23, they simply pulled all the arrest records from all of those 1,800 uh, now 23-year-olds. And what they found was all of them who had been arrested for anything violent or particular deviant, every one of them had a very low and abnormal fear response. In other words, they were three years old saying, I ain't scared of none of y'all. And so at 23, in their teens and in their early adult years, they still weren't scared of anything. There was something pathological going on here because there wasn't any fear. It's good to have fear of some things. We just need to make sure that it's the right things. The thing that I fear more than anything in my life is this, my own sinfulness. Because as much as I can look at the horrific things that happen in the world all around us and hear uh, of terrible things and sins and issues and, and be a pastor and have to deal with, with issues and sins that people are going uh, through in the church context itself. I know that if it's not for the ever-present grace of God today, right now, in my life, that I could go in the same path and it could be terrible. I'm afraid of my own sinfulness. I cry out to God, help me. Help me, I need you, Jesus. Um, one young lady, I'm trying to find a quote here. Nancy Lee DeMoss wrote these words. Though my natural instinct is to wish for a life free from pain, trouble, and adversity, I'm learning to welcome anything that makes me conscious of my need for him. If prayer is birthed out of desperation, then anything that makes me desperate for God is a blessing. Is God making you desperate for him? First point today is, is simply this. You live with a reason to fear. There are things to fear. You live with a reason to fear. Uh, Ahaz and, and Judah had a reason to fear. These were great armies that were about to come against them. They were no match for them. There are things in your life, including your own weaknesses, that you are no match for by yourself. There is a reason to fear. But not only is there a reason to fear, but you've also been given a promise to believe. Let's look at these next verses, starting in verse 3. 
Bible says, And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out and meet Ahaz, you and Shear Yashub, your son. And he tells him where to meet him. Very strange. He says, Go out with your son. His little son is about two years old. What's he going to do? He's a two-year-old little dude. And he says, go out and meet the king with your son. Well, his name means something. Shear Yashub means a remnant shall return. Go out to the king. You're about to be, uh, you're afraid of this great enemy, this coalition that's coming out to you. But go out with your little son whose name is a remnant shall return. Interesting word because that word could be taken one of two ways. It could be taken as a warning. Watch out, only a few are going to make it, king. Or also it could be taken as a promise. A remnant shall return. God will not forget his faithful people. God is with his faithful people. It can be taken either way. Very often when God's word comes to us, that is how it comes. It can be taken as a word of warning or rebuke or a word of promise. It's less contingent upon the word itself and more contingent upon your reaction to it. Will you believe what God says? Will you believe his word? Will you say, yes, oh God, I want to be part of that remnant. I I, I want to honor you. I want to walk with you. I want to see you glorified in my life. Or will you simply take it as a warning? It is a warning, but it's also a promise. You've been given a promise to believe. So he goes out with his young son. And in verse 4, he says four things to him. He, He says, And say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint. Be careful, he says. The word means to keep guard or watch over yourself. Be the watchman on the wall for your own heart. Keep watch so that you might be be secured, he says, Be careful. Keep watch over your own soul. Secondly, he says, be quiet. That word means to be in peace, to be at rest, to be calm. It's something that we often need to hear when the pillars of our world seem like they're shaking. They're shaking, the Bible says, like a leaf on a tree, and God says, be quiet, hush. He says, stop talking for a minute. Stop calling everyone you know and trying to figure it out. Stop putting it all out there on Facebook or wherever else you put it out, right? I call myself tweeting. Now, I don't actually tweet. I don't know how to tweet. I'm not a Twitterite. But whenever I text more than one person at a time, I'll tell my wife I sent out a tweet because I'm so proud of myself. So I'm not as technologically savvy as some of y'all, but I do know the tendency of my heart when I'm scared and I don't know what to do is to run everywhere and to run my mouth and to try to find answers everywhere. But the prophet says, be quiet. Calm yourself. 
I'm here. God is here. Then he says, do not fear. The word means to be afraid or to be frightened. He said, don't be afraid of the wrong thing. Look what he calls these guys. He says, because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. Now, we wouldn't say anything like that, but we would say some things. We would call them by some words, some of which I might not be able to say here in the pulpit, but we would say, don't be scared of these knuckleheads. They're nothing. We're we're talking about standing before Almighty God, the Holy One of Israel, have confidence in Him. Don't be afraid of men. Be afraid of God. Have a right fear of the living God. He says, don't be afraid of them. And lastly, he says, do not let your heart be faint. The word means to be tender or to be weak or to be soft. He says, don't let your heart be tender, weak, and soft. Strengthen yourself in God. Be a man. Stand up. God is with you. He's about to give him the prophecy. God is with us. Right? So he he tells him these things. And then as he, he tells him what what they are conspiring to do, the Lord speaks in verse 7 and says, it shall not stand, it shall not come to pass. He says in the second part of verse 8, within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. Ephraim, again, is equated with Israel, the northern kingdom, 10 tribes that broke off from Judah 200 years earlier and he says within 65 years so this is 735 so he says by 670 bc they will be no more they will be shattered from being a people what we know historically is that within two years of this the king of assyria came in and largely wiped out uh, israel or ephraim then in 722 12 years later they took out a large portion of the population They they took them right out of the land and took over the land. And then somewhere around 670, they not only deported people, but they also imported other people into the land to repopulate it who were not of the 10 tribes of Israel. This is where you'll sometimes hear about the 10 lost tribes. They were lost right here. And the Bible says in 65 years, this people is going to be such a hodgepodge of folks that we won't know who they are. So in the New Testament, this area is called Galilee or Samaria, and you see how the Jews don't like the Samaritans because they're a mixture, a hodgepodge of Jews and others and have other customs and religious beliefs and all this stuff going on. He says they'll no longer be recognizable as a people. God gives them a specific word of prophecy of what's going to happen. So... Uh, You've been given a promise to believe, but look at the end of verse 9. He says these powerful words. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Uses the same Hebrew word there in both parts of that sentence. And, And the word aman means to be supported. But he uses it in different verbal forms. So in the first form, it's more like this. If you're not firm in believing, it means to believe. If you're not firm in believing, he says, you will not be firmly established. What does what you believe have to do with the rest of your life? The answer is 
everything. Who will you believe in? This is the, this is the call to Ahaz 2,750 years ago. This is the call to you today. Who will you put your trust in? When life becomes exceedingly difficult and you don't know how to overcome or what to do, and, and he says, your faith needs to be established now. So what does Ahaz do? We learn about what Ahaz does in 2 Kings chapter 16. And I'll just read a few of the verses there. Here's what Ahaz does. It says, so Ahaz, this is verse 7 of 2 Kings 16. Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria. Now this, Assyria was the greatest power over which um, Israel and Syria wanted to wage war as well. But Assyria was the great dominant power of the day. Tiglath-Pileser was their king, or Tiggy, as he liked to be called by his close friends. So Tiggy says, so Ahaz says to Tiggy, he says, I am your servant and your son. This is the king of Judah. To a foreign, ungodly king, he says, I am your servant and I am your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. Ahaz also took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria listened to him and the king of Assyria marched against Damascus and took, care, and took it, carrying off its people captive to Ker and he killed Rezin. He says, in the midst of this most difficult hour when he and the people of Judah are shaking like a leaf on a tree, he says, who can I trust? I know this king, but it's not the king of kings. It's an earthly king. It's Tiglath-Pileser. It's the king of Assyria. I am going to believe in him so much so that I'm going to take the gold out of the temple of the living God and the silver, the precious things that were consecrated for the purpose of worshiping God, and I'm going to give them to this foreign king because I see his swords, I see his chariots, I see his army. This Holy One of Israel is invisible to me. I don't see him anywhere. So he trusts in this foreign king. So the question is for us, as God calls us in life and puts us in situations that are difficult as he hands out his promise to you, who will you believe in? What will you put your trust in? Will it be in the God who you can't see or will it be somewhere else? Will you have the mechanizations of your mind figure out a way to work it out, to work it through, to, to hook up and ally with others and figure out a way? Or will you trust God, the person of Jesus Christ, God with us? And so lastly, not only do we have a reason to fear and a promise to believe, but also a sign to distinguish, a sign to distinguish. Look at verse 10. 
Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Boy, that sounds religious and right on, doesn't it? The only problem is God said through his prophet, I want you to ask me for a sign. He didn't just come up, I want a sign, you got to show me something, God. No, God said, I want to show you a sign. You can make it as big, as amazing as you can think of. And he says, no, I would never, not me, I won't put the Lord to the test. Why? Because I've already talked to Tiggy over here. I'm not going to put the Lord to the test because I've already got my ducks in a row. I don't need these other ducks, this Aflac thing over here. I've got, I've got my ducks in a row. I'm all set. So I don't have to ask God for a sign. Look what uh, the response of Isaiah is, verse 13. He said, Then hear, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Interesting, when he asked him, he asked him to ask a sign of the Lord your God. But then when he speaks to him after he rejects that, he says, do you weary my God also? I don't know if this is your God at all. <laughs> You've not given your heart to him. Your heart is somewhere else. And his response is a religious response. I won't ask God for a sign. Sometimes we get in the worst trouble when we become very outwardly religious and we know how to say the religious godly thing but our heart is far away from God. I remember early in my marriage I hurt my wife a lot by being very very holy or so I called it holy. So we would get into there would be an argument I wouldn't even say we would get into an argument I would let her argue with herself and as she got mad because I didn't wash the car or take out the trash, and I'd just let her go on a little bit, and I'd look up to the heavens, and then I'd take out my Bible, and I would say, well, honey, I love you, and the Lord loves you, but, but what, what is God saying about this? And, and that would just make her more angry, right? Here I am, holy husband, um, Actually, my heart is far from God because as a holy husband, I want to know my wife, to love my wife, to care for my wife, not to win an argument by default, not by making her madder and madder and saying, hmm, wow, maybe we need to pray for the Holy Spirit to work in your life because obviously he's working in mine. This is problematic. But this is the response of the ungodly king. He wraps it in religion. You ever wrap your stuff, your stuff in religion? Look what Isaiah has to say about that. Isaiah chapter 1. And I just want to read a few verses from Isaiah 1. Starting at verse 13. He says, bring no more vain offerings. God prescribed the offerings. But now he says, I don't want them anymore. Incense is an abomination to me. He told them how to mix the incense in just the right way to make it as an offering fragrant before God. But now God says, it's an abomination. I don't want it anymore. New moon and Sabbath 
and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. In other words, your religion stinks to me. Even when you do it in, in a way particularly described in the law and in the book, but your heart is far away from me. Rend your hearts, he says in another place, and not your garments. I want you, not your outward religious stuff. You make me sick, he says. He goes on to say in verse 16, Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the, widow, the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. They are red like crimson. They shall become white as wool. God says, I want to cleanse you, but you've got to stop playing church. You've got to stop being religious, and you've got to start giving your heart to me. Deal with the depth of your heart. That's the call of God to Ahaz. That's the call of God to you. If you are not scared by your own sin, you don't know yourself very well at all. If it doesn't scare you what you're capable of outside of Christ, then you don't know yourself much at all. So God gives him this incredible uh, uh, revelation here. And let's pick it up. In verse 14, the crux of the matter. So he says, therefore, you don't want a sign? The Lord's going to give you a sign. Check out this sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, you know that name means God with us literally it means with us, God. M is with, Nu is, is us, L is God. With us, God. The virgin is going to conceive a son, and his name will be called Emmanuel. But look at the next verse. We know that from Matthew chapter 1. When Jesus is born, the, the gospel writers say, that this is, this is the prophecy of Isaiah, right? That the virgin would be with child. But there's something else going on here as well because the prophet is speaking to a people at a particular place and time. So he says in verse 15, he shall eat curds and honey. And when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, for behold, the boy knows for before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. So he says something's about to happen, and it's about to happen really quickly, not 700 years later or more when Christ is going to be born, but something is about to happen right now very quickly because this child's going to be born, and before he's able to choose the, the evil from the good, this land will be destroyed. Go down, drop down with me to chapter 8, and let's look at verse 3, starting at verse 3. So it says, And I went to the prophetess, Isaiah, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name Meher Shalal Hashbaz, 
His sons have got some names, y'all. And then he says, for before the boy knows how to cry, my father, my mother, the wealth of Damascus, the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. Very similar to what we just read in chapter 7. Call his name Meher Shalal Hashbaz. The name means quick to plunder, swift to spoil. It means something's about to go down and, and there's about to be a plundering of the land that's going to happen. Now, we, if, if, if Isaiah was a prophet to North Philly, he probably would not have used the name Meher Shalal Hashbaz because we would not have known what that meant. But I believe the name would have been something like this. Name him, this John is about to go down. Yeah. What's his name? This John is about to go down. That's my boy right there. Dag, I'm scared of him. So you get it. It's like this thing is about to happen. Meher Shalal Hashbaz. This John is about to go down. So, so Isaiah speaking to this people in this time, he, he puts out this sign. And, and going back to 714, the virgin will be with child. He uses an interesting word. There is a word in Hebrew that can exclusively mean virgin, but he doesn't use that word. He uses a word Alma, which means a young woman who could be a virgin, but is not necessarily a virgin. Seven or 500 years later, uh, when the, 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 the text of the Hebrew is transcribed, is, is is uh, transcribed into, uh, into Greek, the, the Septuagint uh, is done. Uh, the word that's used is the word parthenos, which is a Greek word that can only mean virgin. This is 150 years before Christ is born. So, so he uses a word originally in the context. Now, I don't know exactly what happened in the room when uh, Isaiah spoke to Ahaz, but perhaps his wife was there. Or perhaps there was another young woman who was there that was a virgin at the time. I don't know. And perhaps he said, this woman, this woman, the virgin, shall conceive and bear a son. But what we do know is that this word that Isaiah spoke had an immediate fulfillment within a couple of years because within a couple of years after he had his son, then Assyria Tiglath-Pileser came in and wiped out large sections of Ephraim or Israel as well as Syria. That happened within two to three years. But there's something more going on here than just that near-term fulfillment. So look with me, if you will, later in chapter 8. And let's begin to read at verse 13. He says, But the Lord of hosts, him shall you honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Not other countries, not other kings, but the Lord, let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Now look at verse 16. Bind up the testimony. He says, let's bind this thing up right now. 
Let's put it away for a minute. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. Isaiah, whose name means the Lord saves, says, myself and my children who have names that prophesy what God is doing, we are portents in Israel. We are telling you what's going on, but now it's time to bind this thing up because something greater than what you see is going on here. And he goes on to prophesy in chapter 9, starting in verse 1, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. After he's talked about the anguish that's about to come on Israel and on Judah, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. He shall be called a Galilean. Jesus is going to come. The Savior is going to come out of Galilee. Look down to verse 6. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be on his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and to uphold it with justice, with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. He says that there is a, a, a young man coming, Meher Shalal Hashbaz, and when he comes, these other things are going to happen. But I'm telling you that one greater is coming who will be born not just of a young woman, but truly of a virgin. The seed of the woman, the Bible says, will crush the head of the serpent. When the Bible uses the term seed, it always speaks of the man as having the seed. But in that instance, it says the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, speaking of Jesus the Christ who is born of the living God, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of a virgin and who will rule the nations forever and ever. He said, he's coming, he's coming. Wait for him. Hold on to him. Believe in him. Trust in him and in no other. Turn to one last scripture today. 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter 2. I'm going to start reading at verse 6. Scripture says this, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. That's a quote from Isaiah chapter 28. 
He says, so the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And he said, and this is right from Isaiah chapter 8, we just read it, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. God is saying that all of history is wrapped up in one person. What you do with this person, how you react to this person, is the center of all history and and is the determiner of everything that has to do with your life here and now and into eternity. And that person is Christ, Jesus, born of a virgin, Galatians says, born under the law in order that he might redeem those who were under the law. He might buy us back. He might win us for himself. What you do with Jesus matters more than anything else in this world. We're going to differ about a lot of doctrinal things at times. We may differ on how we see uh, uh, different aspects or nuances of scriptural commands. We may differ on these things, but the core question is not how well did you do this or that, but what did you do with Jesus? And in the day-to-day reality of life, when life is difficult and, and you may be in fear or shaking, the question comes down to it all over again, Who will you trust? And what will you trust in? Will it be Jesus? Or will you hook it up some other way? By God's grace, I pray that as we move forward, we will cast our lot with Jesus. He is the Christ. He is the ultimate fulfillment to the Emmanuel prophecy. God is with us now, here, and forever. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the amazing love that you have for us in Jesus Christ. We are blown away by the beauty of your word and the power that you have. Lord, we don't understand it all. And we won't understand much of it on this side of eternity. We'll understand it more by and by, but but for now, our mortal minds, our, our finite minds, our, there, some of these things to us are cloaked in mystery. And it seems like we are easy prey for those who would mock this faith. But God, I pray that we will be, not be those haughty and high-minded who think that we are smart enough to figure out the nuances of Almighty God. But Lord, I pray that we would be those who instead kneel before you and open up our hands to heaven and our mouths to say, as Isaiah said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of your glory. Glorify your name, Lord, in the lives of your people. And may we look to you only as our salvation. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.